This is hell. We are live with another Limbo edition of This Is Hell. I'm board operator Dan. Our host Chuck is still laid up, but is getting better each and every day. He'll be back in the studio just as soon as possible. But until then, the board ops are playing some of our favorite This Is Hell episodes from the vaults. These will be supplemented by all new Hangover Cures, Rotten Histories, Moments of Truth with Jeff Dorchin, and Questions from Hell. Speaking of which, this week's question from hell is what is your little Calvin peeing on? What is your little Calvin peeing on? You know what I'm talking about. You see a big truck in the little back window. You see a little Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. And he'll be peeing on something. Something the truck owner takes a dim view of. So, if it's a Ford truck owner, they might have Calvin take a pee on a Chevrolet logo to convey their partisanship. I take a dim view of Chevrolet as a brand. So what do you take a dim view of? What is your little Calvin peeing on? Post your answer to the question from hell at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The very finest answer will be selected by our panel of judges and awarded with some merchandise from the This Is Hell store. For example, a shirt, or a mug, or a toque. I'll be reading some of your questions from hell answers right after this hand-picked interview from the vaults. This week, as promised, I'll be playing some interviews with the late David Graeber, who we lost far too soon in 2020. David was an anthropologist and anarchist activist. I have a lot of fond memories of inhaling his long books. In particular, his two books, The Utopia of Rules and B.S. Jobs. The real title of which I feel like I probably can't say on the radio. In these, he developed this important idea that the left needs to form a coherent critique of bureaucracy and that this is a space that has been unnecessarily ceded to the right. He also highlights that the bureauc- that bureaucracy as we experience it is usually in the form of interaction with supposedly free market entities, like when you have to call Comcast, for example, even though the word itself seems to evoke a criticism of big government. It is possible to get painted into a corner sometimes and protecting important social programs, and you're seen as advocating for bureaucracy. And some people will double down and defend bureaucracy as such, Graeber Graeber gives us tools to see what the real source of bureaucracy in our daily lives are and how we might respond to them. So let's check out this 2015 interview where Graeber was talking with Chuck about his book, The Utopia of Rules. This is hell. The total, brutal, oppressive bureaucracy we find ourselves living in today is a creation of our own choosing. Here to tell us how we can still choose another way before it's too late, David Graeber is the author of the new book, The Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity, and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy. Welcome back to This is Hell, David. 
Oh, thanks for having me. Hello. It's great to have you back on the phone, uh, on the phone, and on our show this morning, uh, David. So you write uh, nowadays nobody talks about bureaucracy, but in the middle of the last century, particularly in the late '60s and early '70s, the word word was everywhere. Everyone seemed to feel that the foibles and absurdities of bureaucratic life and bureaucratic procedures were one of the defining features of modern existence, and as such, imminently eminently worth discussing. But since the 1970s, there has been a peculiar falling off. To you, what explains this falling off? Because it's not like work life is any less bureaucratic simply because it has become paperless. Do you think that's part of it, that we think that the technology, because it's become paperless, we think that we're even less bureaucratic than we were in the past? Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you know, our lives are engulfed in paperwork, but it's not actually paper. So, so, that's part of it. But part of it, too, is the fact that our major assumption about bureaucracy, and this wasn't always true, but nowadays when you hear the word bureaucracy, you think big government, civil servants, uh, pointy-headed bureaucrats. So it's like George Wallace made that uh, expression famous, always referring to like annoying government people who are trying to limit the market and limit our free sort of um, willingness to truck and barter, engage in free contract. And that kind of kind of an enlightenment myth almost. Um, that's never goes away, but, but it really, really catches up with us recently to the point that the moment I mention the word bureaucracy, people start talking about the government, and that's the only thing they can talk about. But in fact, you know, 95% of the bureaucracy that you deal with on a day-to-day level is either uh, the government has nothing to do with it, or, the, or it serves this kind of weird synthesis of public and private. So those distinctions of you know, corporate bureaucracies and government bureaucracies are almost meaningless at this point. I give the example of banks. I was on the phone. I live in England now. Um, I was on the phone with Bank of America because they introduced some new security system that became impossible to check my account. And I tried to figure out a way that I actually could check my account. It took about an hour. I got bounced back and forth between 17 desks and had to re-enter all sorts of data four or five times. They kept losing it. Classic bureaucratic runaround, right? Um, now, was that public or private? Well, it's a private bank, right? If you complain to the bank, you know, they always say the same thing. Well, you know, there's all these government regulations that really ties our hands. It's right. complicated. But then if you look at how they actually come up with that, um, those government regulations, half of it's written by the bank. You know, they, they have their lobbyists. They come up with proposals. They give a lot of money to the politicians. They sit down with them, and they sort of work something out. And basically, the bank writes the regulations, which, which the government then uses to um, – regulate it, but also regulate us, because almost everything we do is is actually regulated by these weird public-private hybrid rule, rules and laws. You know, I was... <sighs> While you were just answering that, replying to my uh, question, I was thinking about uh, this whole story that's going on with this scandal with this representative Aaron Schock here in the United States, who's uh, you know I haven't been following that hor- horrible spending yeah. habits. This guy he he made a uh, made his office okay. look like Downton Abbey. Then they found out that the people who gave him the money to do that were a contractor. They didn't give him the money; they just did it for free. That led to a whole bunch of scandals. He's been uh-huh. on the front of Men's Health magazine showing off his abs. They found out that he's been 
spending and spending and spending tons of taxpayer money, and it looks like he's just one of those people who is a rent a congressman from, uh, you know, like maybe Caterpillar or some uh, Peoria uh, corporation. But the whole story has been about his spending habits. It's not about who the people are who were giving him money for campaign funds or trying to find out which legislation um, he may have passed to represent those concerns. Is this the same kind of avoiding the bureaucracy situation? Well, exactly. I mean, well, if you talk about corruption, if you look on paper, in theory, the most corrupt countries in the world, they always have like Nigeria, Russia, countries like that. And then America is supposed to be one of the least corrupt. But that's because in Russia or Nigeria, giving a politician money to influence their vote is still illegal. Here it's not. It's just been totally normalized. <laughs> Which is beautiful, right? So that's why they're not breaking the law. You don't want these people to become criminals for doing what they're doing, right? <laughs> exactly. So if you legalize bribery, I mean, all this stuff that's illegal in other countries is legal here. I have a friend who um, was from South Africa was trying to get his passport or or his visa expedited. And he said, well, on the form, you know, it says, all right, you know, here's what you pay to get your visa. It might take two weeks. Here's like, you know, if you want to give $100, we'll do it tomorrow. And it's a box to check. You know, this is like any other country. You have to put that in an envelope and like slip it under the desk. <laughs> I love that, though. That's very efficient. It gets out the middleman. Uh, you, you write how the mainstream exactly. left, you, you write how uh, the mainstream left or what is supposed to pass for the left these days has come to offer a little more than a watered down version of the right wing's ver- uh, language when it comes to yeah. being critical of bureaucracy. Bill Clinton, for instance, had spent so much of his career bashing civil servants <laughs> that after the Oklahoma City bombing, he actually felt moved to remind Americans that public servants were human beings unto themselves and promised never to use the word, quote-unquote, bureaucrat again. Why is it such a, uh, why is uh, bureaucrat such a vulnerable target? What is something we depend on so much? Why do they seem to lack a voice? The reason why is because bureaucracy, your, your actual experience of dealing with bureaucrats is of, you know, annoying, officious people who make you feel like an idiot. And there's something about acting within a bureaucratic environment. And this is actually something that as an anthropologist I find quite fascinating. Um, why is it that when we are in a bureaucratic environment, not only is the whole thing set up to make us feel like an idiot, but we actually start to act like an idiot. I mean, I like to think I'm a fairly smart guy, but you know, I find myself when I'm filling out forms just making obvious stupid mistakes. And then people look at you and like look at you like you're an idiot. And oh my God, they're right. I put the thing on the wrong way. Um, so, so, so there's something about the experience, which is essentially humiliating. It's, it's a form of utopianism, I always say, um, bureaucracy. This is the, the classical critique of countries like the Soviet Union, with, you know, the sort of right-wing critique of state socialism is always, well, it's utopian. These guys they have this sort of idealized image of how people should behave, and they make up a whole set of rules saying, trying to shape them into that shape, but people won't fit in that shape. So, you know, when they realize that, when people don't act like they're supposed to behave and break the rules, instead of saying, oh, we, we need to reexamine our rules, they say, oh, these people are obviously inadequate, and they lock them up or punish them in some way. Now, actually, that's, not, that's basically how bureaucracy always works. But um, the amazing thing is that, that that type of bureaucratic utopianism has now become the major engine for profit accumulation in capitalism. If you look at, like, 19... 19- uh, I think 2009, the last figures are available. Uh, biggest bank in America is J.P. Morgan Chase. 
71% of their profits came from fees and penalties. So basically what they do for a living is they make up rules that they know you can't follow. And then when you don't follow it, instead of saying, oh, we need to readjust the rules, they say, oh, well, obviously you're, you're guilty of something. And they, they find you. And that's how they make their money now. So how that public-private partnership, which everybody loves, right? The yeah. public-private partnership is the perfect <laughs> well, concession. <laughs> be, I know. Is the perfect concession between the Democrats and the Republicans, right? The uh, Democrats right. get yeah. their public everybody side. Everybody in Washington loves and nobody anywhere else. Exactly, exactly. So uh, why is that not what's best for either the right or the left? Well, you know, I think that one reason that the right has been taking the populist and working class vote uh, and the left has basically lost it, is that, you know, since people like Clinton, Blair, um, all these sort of new uh, new Democrats, new labor, all these kind of guys, I mean, they're basically um, corporate leftists. And, and, and they really represent the professional managerial class. So they dump their working class constituencies that used to exist in, in, in working you know, left parties. They adopt these basically bureaucrats and professionals as their core constituency. And and then they come up with this politics that only makes sense to people like that, where you kind of let's adopt the worst elements of the market and of bureaucracy and kind of fuse them together. And and maybe if you're a hospital administrator, this is cool. But anybody else in the world is like the worst nightmare you can have. Now the right wing, um, you know, is divided in you could say in, in two halves. There's the sort of conservative, authoritarian, fascist left, let's say. And then you have the libertarian free market left. Well, well, the libertarians, at least they have a critique of bureaucracy. And the fascists, at least they have a critique of the market. I mean, fascists are, you know, they're all for the welfare state. They just want it only for white people. Um, so, you know, they either one has some kind of critique of this sort of bureaucratic, um, bureaucratic corporate market fusion. But the left doesn't. There's no critique of either. Right, and why? The mainstream, left, why you know, the acceptable? Left. Right, but why don't they have that? Is that simply because they've had to move so much to the right in order to attain the money that they think they need, uh, attain the campaign funds they need, so they can get the Reagan Democrats? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's a there's a system of bribery. I mean, they're not allowed to actually promote actual left wing policies. Um, you know, real left policies are, are just ruled out from the beginning, um, and. I think even more, like the institutional left hasn't really come to terms intellectually with the way the capitalism has changed. Um, I think in the 60s, there was a real left-wing critique of bureaucracy. I mean, if you listen to music in the 60s, they're complaining about, you know, union bureaucrats and civil servants and all that kind of stuff, just as much as they're complaining about capital, if not more so. Um, and at the time, it was a critique of corporatism. You know, you had these giant corporations where these kind of where the workers were really loyal to the company, but the company is also loyal to the workers. So the result politically is kind of scary. That's like this Archie Bunker territory. You know, you have this right-wing working class. It's hyper-nationalist. And they see finance as the enemy, those guys, back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, even the 70s. Um, you know, the corporation is, is this big, happy family, and the investors are kind of these outsiders. And the most extreme form of that is fascism, where they want to kill the outsiders. You know, they assume that the financier guys are all Jews and you know, you're awesome. But, but, but nonetheless, that model was very common, this corporatist model. And there's various technical reasons why that happens. Um, and, and as a result, you know, social democracy, fascism, even state communism was kind of a lot more similar in certain structural ways than uh, any of them wanted to make out. And the left-wing critique was always to point that out. 
Now you get the right saying that. They say anything that looks like a welfare state is like both communist and fascist at the same time. But that, that critique no longer has anything to do with what's going on, because it used what really happened in the 70s was that the sort of upper echelons of the corporate bureaucracy, who used to be loyal to the company, there was lifetime employment, uh, you know, they saw themselves as basically in the business of making cars or basically in the business of making perfume or food or whatever it is they were making. You know, those guys essentially fused with the financial class, and both of them became the sort of new financialized corporate bureaucracy. And this is the thing that really changed the whole landscape. And we talk about financialization. I mean, that's what happened. These guys became the same people. Um, the financial sector became corporatized. You have all these hedge funds and whatnot. Um, you have this profound change in what the guys who are CEOs or the top of corporate um, bureaucracies think they're trying to do. It's all about profits. They're getting paid in stock options. Um, that wasn't really the big concern back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Now, when that happens, there's a gigantic cultural transformation, uh, and, and that's the beginning of what I call the, the era of total bureaucratization. Um, they're the guys who start pushing computers. And as I point out in the book, you know, back in the 70s when these guys were starting to take charge, computers were a joke. You know, they did everything wrong. Anytime there was a mistake, just, oh, great, some computer, right? Um, now they've managed to put so much time and energy and investment into these computers that they're the only thing that you kind of can depend on. Um, you know, ATM machines are the only thing that never makes a mistake. Right. Um, so, yeah, so so that era of bureaucratization, it's not like computers come along and change everything. It's more like these guys come along and develop certain technologies, um, really push information technology, certain types of medical technologies, move away from all that space age stuff, um, which is about actually, you know, doing something. And as a result, um, we have this incredible pervasive um, mechanisms uh, that insert bureaucracy into every aspect of our lives, and those bureaucracies themselves become the primary way that money is extracted and that profits are made. Right, and so that uh, that bureaucracy, it, I mean, why can't we be equal in our criticism of the inefficiency of that bureaucracy by saying this happens within the corporate world, this happens in the private sector, and this happens in the public sector? Is the reason that we can't be that critical of it, is the reason that we can't even recognize that we are in this total bureaucracy, is it because of a fear of being anti-capitalist? Is it fear of being critical of capitalism? That's part of it, yeah. It's a fear of being critical of capitalism, and it's also a fear of being, you know, sort of giving up the last little things that you do have from leftover from the 60s and 70s, the, you know, the little bits of the welfare state. So much of the left is on defensive. And, of course, they are afraid to, you know, attack the beast itself. Um, so, so it's a loser's game. You know, I mean, let us, like, desperately try to grapple on to the little bits that we still have of a, of a system that's essentially gone the way of history and will never be restored. Um, but in order to actually take the offensive again, you know, you've got to size up what the system that actually exists is and, and what an alternative to it within, you know, taking into account the major changes that have happened would actually look like. It's not even clear that the system of extraction we have nowadays, which largely operates on rent extraction, you know, the sort of utopian making up rules you can't follow and fine you for it system of capitalism actually is capitalism. I mean, you could argue over definitions, but, you know, back when I was in school, they told us that capitalism is when you take, you know, your profits indirectly by producing and selling things through wage differentials and whatnot and uh, exploitation of labor. And um, when you take money just directly via general political means is the term they used to use, that was called feudalism. 
We are speaking I mean, with David Graeber. Now it looks a lot more like that. Yeah, we are speaking with David Graeber. He is the author of the new book, The Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity, <laughs> and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy. He teaches anthropology at the London School of Economics, and you may know him from an earlier work uh, by David. Uh, that is Debt the First mm-hmm. 5,000 Years. Uh, so here's the, you were mentioning ATMs, and I'm glad that you mentioned ATMs because it, every time I hear somebody mm-hmm. talk about how ATMs always dispense the right amount of money, the correct amount of money, and you're absolutely right i've never had that error damn it but i can put in uh i'll put in a couple of bucks for uh you know a candy bar or a soda in a machine and they'll say flatten out that dollar bill you got to make sure that dollar bill is completely flattened out and it's going to work perfect and then it'll work and you have to struggle and you got to struggle you got to struggle there is one machine only one machine that you can put in any crumpled up dollar five dollar bill ten twenty the lotto machine. I have never had a dollar turned down in a lotto machine, no matter how crumbled, spindled, and mutilated they have been. And I, I was just thinking about it because you were talking about how great ATMs are and how they're constantly dispensing the right amount of money. Mm. Well, I think that, that this is a subtle message. I mean, I, I, I first thought about it when back during 2000, uh, when they were talking about the... Um, you know, the, the hanging chats and all these voting machines. Mm-hmm. You just assume there's going to be a 0.5 or 1% like rate of error. Right. And like, you know, we're supposed to be a democracy where voting is our great sacrament. And they just like take it for granted there will be a, a fairly large error rate in voting, even though we only do it once every four years. You wouldn't think it would be that hard to fix, right? Um, you know, whereas somebody pointed out, well, you know, every day we do like, you know, how many million transactions involving ATMs with a 0% rate of error? And it's the only thing like that. You know, anything else, you try to, like, buy food through those automatic machines, and, like, everything goes wrong. Right. The weight's wrong, or this is wrong. <laughs> it's, like, it's incredibly annoying. Uh, and it's almost, it seems to function on so whatever subtle level is this way of, of telling you that finance is the ultimate reality. It's the only thing you can really depend on. It's the only thing that's really real, which I guess is something they have to do because, um, you know, it's, it's pure fantasy. It's a complete abstraction. You know, anything involving actual material stuff goes wrong, but anything involving pure financial abstraction, you know, always works perfectly. You know, you certainly saying that is the best lack of reality. You write about how uh, one thing that Americans are good at, they're really good at bureaucracy. The U.S. culture is really good at at bureaucracy. (laughs) If we're so good at it, then why is it such a winner when it comes to attacking bureaucrats politically? Is it are we ashamed of how good we are at bureaucracy? I, I, I can't came up with a formula like that because I live now in England. We're in England, people are almost proud of the fact that they're so bad at bureaucracy. I mean, everything goes wrong all the time, and everybody's sort of like, well, what do you expect? Come on. Um, you know, when I came here to London, the first thing I started noticing was all these signs on all the public amenities saying, and official buildings saying, please do not physically attack the petty officials, you know? Um, and I was like, well, you think normally that would kind of go about saying. Uh, but, you know, after... A month or two, I was like, now I understand, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it's really annoying. Uh, But on the other hand, you know, America, it's the exact opposite. Here they're proud of being bad at it. In America, they're almost ashamed of being good at it. I guess you could say Germans are proud of being good at it and Russians are ashamed of being bad. So there's a complete four-part set there. But all logical permutations exist somewhere. But, but yeah, I think, you know, some ways I I sometimes... Say that America is kind of this German country that doesn't want to admit it. 
<laughs> you know, think about it. America, I, mean, I think there's more German people of German descent than British descent in America. And what are our national foods, like the hamburger and the Frankfurter? How does that happen? <laughs> so we're Germany light? Is that what you're telling us? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Americans really are Germans, but they're Germans in denial. <laughs> so uh, so we're, we're really good at bureaucracy. How much do we owe bureaucracy for America's superpower success? Well, I mean, if, if you look at history, it was America and Germany that invented corporate capitalism. I mean, British capitalism, they had the East India Company and all that stuff. But actually, that stuff went by the boards after the South Sea bubble in, like, the 1690s. So in the heyday, in the Industrial Revolution and the period, Victorian period, British capitalism was mostly little companies. You know, it wasn't bureaucratic. They had high finance, and then they had family firms. Um, and it was the Americans and the Germans who invent corporate, bureau, uh, corporate bureaucratic capitalism all those guys like Andrew Carnegie and the Robert Barons. I mean, they were really founders of bureaucratic firms. And and um, you could say that, like, you know, from first half of the 20th century, it was basically American corporate capitalism and German corporate capitalism, like, duking it out over which one would become the successor to England. Uh, America won, obviously. Uh, but and, and what's the first thing America does when it takes over the world? takes the mantle from England, immediately sets up a planetary bureaucracy. You get the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, all the, you know, England never tried to create anything like that. That's, uh, obviously. So American bureaucracy, you know, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so we have the world's first planetary bureaucratic administration, which nobody really talks about as such, but that's been a major innovation in world history, and it's entirely an American creation. Right, and you point out that that may have actually been what the Occupy movement was about. That may have actually been what the Occupy movement was protesting, whether they knew it or not. Uh, How would you explain to somebody who is— the global justice movement above all. Right, and so how would you—if you were at Mm -hmm. Occupy Wall Street at the time that it was taking place, how would you explain to somebody who was an occupier that this is about an Mm -hmm. anti-bureaucratization critique that they should be embracing and uh, focusing on? Oh, just tell them, like, you know, who's administering your bank, you know, your, your, your student loan debts? I mean, how did that happen? Who created it? Who's, 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 who's in charge of administering it? Who comes after you if you don't pay it on time? I mean, you didn't really have to explain that. People were quite well aware that the banks and the government were basically the same thing. I mean, I think back in 99, 2000, it was a little harder, actually, to explain that to people because it hadn't hit them personally. So there's all this rhetoric about the third world debt, and everybody claimed framed everything like the free market, globalization. Somehow the internet and free trade is just uniting us all as a spontaneous bottom-up phenomena. But then if you go look at what actually happened, no. There were all these institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, which were completely imposing their way on, on um, countries all over the world. And, had, and, and that includes also transnational corporations. It includes NGOs. This is kind of global bureaucratic network being set up so that even in terms of social policy, if you're living in Nepal, like chances are, you know, some NGO is designing your urban planning in Chicago or Switzerland or something like that. But it's a planetary bureaucracy. And and the thing is, you're not supposed to see it. You're supposed to think the market just kind of comes around all by itself. But in fact, it never, it never does. Um, if you look at the history of England or America, places where you have what seem like free market systems, actually, it's very, very specific government policies that create those markets and maintain them. And you had to do the same thing on a global level. So all we were doing when we, you know, the famous uh, WTO protests in Seattle, the IMF protests, is really pointing out the existence of these institutions that nobody actually knew existed. 
for the most part before that. And as soon as people saw them, I mean, you know, they say in politics, all you have to do is point. That's not really true. But in this case, it was. You know, all you had to do is like, look, there's this thing called the IMF. And it was very interesting because, you know, we couldn't get the media to actually write what we thought was wrong with the IMF. You know, phrases like structural adjustment policy, you just couldn't get that into the news. We tried so hard. We just said it over and over again. Every time there was a reporter, they were like, no, we're not going to do that. Um, so they wouldn't explain to anybody why we were protesting. But in a way, they didn't have to. All we had to do was point that these institutions exist. There is this global bureaucracy telling people all over the world how to run their economy and what to do, no matter who they elect. And that was enough. You know, Nobody had been aware of it. And as soon as they knew, they, they were not very happy with it. And this is, in your opinion, what makes the global justice movement, what made it a success. I've had so many conversations with people who yeah. say that the Occupy movement was a failure. And then I just look at them and I say, do you know what the terms 1% and 99% mean? And they say, yes, well, of course I do. And I'm like, well, what did you? What does that mean? Well, there's a lot of wealth and wealth inequality and wage inequality. Okay. So the Occupy movement was a success because it got you to know that. You say the same thing about the global justice movement. What we hear from people like uh, Oprah Winfrey, for instance, she was upset with the Ferguson protesters because they didn't have a list of demands. Well, the demand is to wake up and realize that there's police violence going on that's racially based all over this country. So that's the achievement. So how would you argue to somebody that the global justice, so you're arguing that the global justice movement was a success simply because it got people's attention on things like the WTO, on things like uh, you know um, the CAFTA and all and NAFTA and all those different mm-hmm. uh, free trade bills. But why would you say that was a success? Because I think a lot of people who are very pessimistic think that that, just like the mm-hmm. Occupy movement, failed. Well, the Occupy movement, you know, I mean, first of all, I think the Occupy movement did more in six months than most social movements have ever done in ten years. Um, I mean, and who knows what what the world is going to look like ten years from now as a, as a result of it. But but you know, global justice movement very very clear what happened. Um, I mean, have you heard about a third world debt crisis recently? <laughs> no. Did people bounce that around. <laughs> no, that's because there isn't one anymore. And why is that? It was because of us. We basically did it. I mean, we did it much faster than we could possibly do. Um, I mean, when we could when we, sorry than we possibly thought we could do. And it's quite remarkable, if you look at the history, um, that I think in Latin, Latin American IMF debt was, well, I don't have the exact numbers on me, but you know, it was something like $80 billion or some crazy number like that um, in 2001. And then by 2004, it was 0.5. Um, basically, they got rid of it. And it all happened because of Argentina. And that was directly part of the global justice movement. Um, there was a series of uprisings, again, largely nonviolent uprisings, against a series of governments after the financial crash. And um, people started doing exactly what, what we were doing everywhere. It was, they started setting up any media centers. They started setting up popular assemblies. They started creating alternative currency systems, occupying factories. Instead of going into the political system, they said their slogan was que se vayan todos. You know, they can all go to hell. Fuck all politicians. We don't like them. Um, we, we're just some create our own society and ignore them. And essentially what they were doing was exactly what we were doing with Occupy, which was daring the politicians to prove to us they were in any way relevant to our real problems and carrying on without. Um, that actually was incredibly successful because the end result was that um, was that politicians 
finally did have to do something, so they defaulted on the Argentine debt. The guy did it was Nestor Kirchner, who was an extremely mild social democrat. Never would have done things like that if people had you know, worked within the system like everybody tells them they're supposed to, started petitions around candidates. I mean, nothing would have happened. But by delegitimizing the whole system, they brought things to a pass where he had to do something really dramatic. So he did. And that set off shockwaves where by inter, you know, one thing led to another, and the IMF was ultimately kicked out of almost every country on earth. IMF was kicked out of East Asia. The IMF was completely kicked out of Latin America and the Caribbean. I think there's two countries in the Caribbean where they can now operate. Everywhere else, they're just persona non grata. I mean, it's interesting that nobody knows this. This is how successful the global justice movement was. In fact, within a few years, the IMF itself was on the point of bankruptcy, and it was only the crisis in Europe itself that kind of gave them a new lease on life and excuse for existence. So let's get back to just bureaucracy for a few more questions before I let you go. Uh, the bureaucracy that controls us, and we participate within uh, this public-private partnership, how much does this encourage or reinforce wealth disparity or economic and social inequality? Mm-hmm. Wait, say that again? Uh, how, how I'm does, in the middle of an occupation right now. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, what, well, wait, hold a second. Let's not... Occupying the... Go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, um, I actually had to run off to LSE because the students are occupying part of the old building. So I just came and I uh, had to wave at someone. Uh, I'm about to go in. Well, hold um, a second. So, what yeah, are you, what, so you know, what, why are you occupying? Well, I'm not personally, but the students are. Right. I'm being supportive. Um, well, you know about Amsterdam. You know what's happening there? Uh, news doesn't come to America stuff anymore. Yeah, there's a huge occupation going on in the University of at Amsterdam. The whole place is under occupation. Administration is under occupation. Has been for weeks. And neoliberal reforms. Basically, you know, there's been this move to try to like move in the direction of privatizing or effectively privatizing education. And it kind of hit a watershed, and people are fighting back. And in here in the UK in 2010, there's a huge student movement and failed to stop the raising of tuition fees and the effective privatization of the education system, introduction of student loans. But now it's been such an obvious failure that everybody's pushing for free education again. So they've actually set up this thing they call the Free University of London, you know, on the grounds of LSE, and we're going to give free courses and invite everybody to do it and, and, and create a model of, of what a real democratic university system might be like. So this is inspired by Amsterdam and Solidarity, and it's starting to happen in a lot of other places, too. I think three other universities are already in occupation across London. Yeah, I think I heard about this in Toronto. I didn't know it was related to something that was going on in Amsterdam, though. I, all right, now I'm going to have to look into that. And by the way, uh, we uh, had a colleague of yours on the show a few weeks ago, or over a month ago now, uh, Dilar Durek, and, uh, Durek uh, the Kurdistan from Ro- Rojava. Uh, she was one of the uh, contingent... Oh, Dilar. Dilar is great. Right. Yes. She, was, yeah. she was amazing on our show. Yeah, and before I... I, I do have, I have some more questions for you about your, about your book, but... Uh, before I forget, yeah, we were we were in Syria together in earlier December, early December. Right. Tell me what. Do, so, what did you think of what did you think of Rojava as somebody who isn't obviously a Kurdish refugee, somebody who has uh, some kind of an outside perspective? <laughs> uh, what did you think of it? I thought it was incredibly impressive. I, I must admit, um, you know, I'd never actually been in the middle of a revolutionary society before. Um, you know, I've read a lot about it, and I've been in sort of minor revolutionary free spaces of many, many kinds. But this was, you know, I mean, my first reaction is like, wow, this is like someone took like about two, three thousand people just like me and sort of let them loose on a small Middle Eastern country. You know, <laughs> they could do anything they wanted. <laughs> this is great. Um, 
<laughs> obviously, you know, it was very, very much a spontaneous bottom-up assault thing of self-organization. But, um, you know, there's all these people, these wild, crazy projects, and uh, which were they're setting up these academies. Um, part this is like a key part of, of the revolutionary process. There, the idea is like democratization of knowledge. Um, rather than a rule of experts, we need to make knowledge as widely available as possible. So they have, you know, everything from agricultural or economic um, academies where they teach you how to set up a co-op to police academies. And they say, well, you know, our ultimate aim is to give everyone in the country six months of police training and then abolish the police. Um, and, you know, and they have feminist academies and political academies. And, and um, so there's all these, like, wild schemes. There was this, like crazy doctor who wanted to turn all cities into 70% green space because he felt it would like largely eliminate um, heart disease. <laughs> I like that. That sounds great. By stress. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. Wow, I'm very wonderful. jealous. It's you know, wonderful I, I sent the uh, interview to uh, Noam Chomsky and he got back in touch with me right away and he said, this is an amazing interview and he was really interested in going to Rojava and I said, I will connect you with Dilar then yeah, because should. you should definitely go. All right, so just a couple more questions. He's been he's been skeptical in the past. I'm glad. I'm glad that he's coming around. Oh yeah, he's very he's very excited about it. He was really excited about the interview. So, and I'll send it to you too, David. Uh, so, mm-hmm. wait uh, before I let you go. Okay. A couple more questions. Uh, you believe the financialization of capitalism that occurred when we went off the gold standard in 1971? Quote: Ultimately, for profound long-term changes, I suspect will ultimately uh, spell the end of capitalism mm-hmm. entirely. I know it's from an earlier book, yeah. but why does financialization okay. mean the end of capitalism? eventually well if you look i mean if you look at the sort of long-term historical cycles capitalism has only really existed within one round of this cycles of alternate alternation between periods of virtual money and periods of bullion money i mean i can't go into the whole argument here but um basically when i started looking into it i noticed there's this fascinatingly consistent historical pattern that occurs across the eurasian continent you know all the way back three four thousand years ago to to the present um where you have you know first you have virtual credit money um originally everything's on credit they don't even have coins or um physical money in in ancient mesopotamia or egypt for example um money is virtual unit of account and then, you know, you get periods dominated by bullion, um, which tend to be where people are actually using physical money in everyday transactions. Such periods tend to be dominated by mass war empires, standing armies, empires, often slavery, um, chattel slavery across Eurasia. And the first time they did this was around 800 BC to 880. Uh, and then in the Middle Ages, it goes back to virtual money again. You have a long cycle where, you know, those empires and standing armies and largely slavery kind of disappears across that area. Um, virtual money, always ha- you always have to have some mechanism to protect credit- debtors against creditors, otherwise the whole thing is going to go crazy. And um, But, you know, capitalism corresponds to one wing of- leg of that cycle where they go back to bullion money, starting really around 1450, but taking off after Columbus comes to the Americas, and there's all this gold and silver moving across the oceans. Um, and, you know, you get back to standing armies and the empires and the slavery, uh, which had largely disappeared, and now we have wage slavery, which is really just a variation of the same thing. You know, you know if Aristotle were here, I always say, he would definitely think that most Americans are slaves, you know, because in the ancient world, the distinction between someone who, like, sells himself because he's in debt to work for somebody else, uh, and somebody who rents himself out every day because he's in debt to work for somebody else, 
you know, is, is not. In fact, it's a minor legal technicality. It's basically the same thing. Um, so, so we have this system that has corresponded in time almost entirely with one leg of a cycle, which is now shifting radically the other way. And of course, at first, they try to do everything all wrong. Um, you know, normally, when you have a system of credit money, you have to set up some institution to protect debtors, so make sure the thing doesn't go crazy, doesn't go out of hand. Um, so either you have jubilees, you cancel the debts, or you have anti-usury laws, so you just ban taking interest entirely. Something like that has to be done. Instead, we set up the IMF and institutions like that, which are designed to do exactly the opposite, to protect creditors against debtors. Well, you know, what's the result? We've had nothing but debt crises and, and, and economic disasters ever since. It's been completely unstable. It's completely unworkable over the long term. So they've got to come up with something. But the something that they're going to come up with, um, you know, there's really no reason to assume that it's going to be capitalism. Uh, there's And a lot of reasons to assume it won't. For one thing, what system we have is increasingly doesn't look like capitalism already. As I say, most profits are now being taken through rents and through you know, direct sort of extraction so that corporations and government are fusing together. Um, you know, I don't know how much of the average American's income is just directly taken by the fire sector, by finance, insurance, and real estate, but it's pretty big. You know, if you factor in mortgages, student loans, uh, it seems to be someplace somewhere between 20 and 40 percent of median household income. So, so, it's interesting that the numbers aren't available. You, know, you can get numbers on almost anything else right. without one you can't. Right. Um, but, you know, that is that capitalism anymore? Maybe we're not in capitalism now. Yeah, that's a really so good that's point. That's what I always say. In 50 years, yeah. In, you know, um, they always say that, well, you know, capitalism, there might not have been wage labor in factories yet in, like, I don't know, 1600, but it was still, it was already capitalism because it's going to lead to that. There's an historical trajectory which moves in that direction. Well, if that's the case, how do we know that, like, future historians will say, we're, whatever the next thing is, we're in that now? You know, it's not even capitalism anymore. It's something that's only going to really take form in maybe 2150. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty frightening. Uh, David, uh, uh, one of the things that you write about in your book, too, is I want to make sure that people understand you also write about the credentialization. And I uh, and you quote uh, one of our correspondents, uh, Sarah Kenzior, at that point. And uh, that, credential, that credentialization, uh, one of the ways that I see it expressed all the time right now is through uh, you know, all the testing that we're doing of students here in the United States. Uh, yeah. I mean, that credentialization. And so people should know about that aspect of your book. It's really interesting. And uh, it's just a great yeah, book. I'm actually, we're working on something about that right now. With, um, oddly enough, with Brian Eno, uh, we're going to write something on bullshit education as a, a sequel to the bullshit jobs. Oh, really? That's fantastic. Yeah. So you should you should play uh, what's about that, man. What is the uh, whoa? Gee, what is I just got it for my girlfriend the Brian Eno card game where uh dilemma where the, you get dilemmas. Oh, the uh, bleak strategies. Oh, bleak strategies. Yeah, I just got that for my girlie for her, for her birthday. She's very excited about it. I love that. I love oblique strategies. It's really great. Uh, David, one last question for you. We've been speaking with David David Graber. He is the author of the new book, The Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity, and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy, and he is quickly becoming one 
one of my very, very, very favorite guests. Uh, you, uh, one of the things, oh, I, uh, my, my uh, last question for you uh, is, as always, as we do it with all of our guests, is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience will hate the response. You write in contemporary American populism and increasingly in the rest of the world as well. There can be only one alternative to bureaucracy, and that is the market. Sometimes this is held to mean that government should be run more like a business. Sometimes it is held to mean we should simply get the bureaucrats out of the way and let nature take its course, which means letting people attend to the business of their lives, untrammeled by endless rules and regulations imposed on them from above. And so allowing the magic of the marketplace to provide its own solutions, democracy thus came to mean the market, uh, bureaucracy in turn, government uh, interference with the market. And this is pretty much what the word continues to mean to this day. But in this definition of democracy, and democracy is not at odds with the market, mm-hmm. but it is the market. And I'm asking this because we've talked about fascism recently with historian Rick Perlstein. We have done so with our new correspondent mm-hmm. in Switzerland, Ed Sutton. How much of a step is democracy meaning the market? How much is that a step toward fascism? How much is this bureaucracy we have uh-huh. a step towards fascism? Well, you see, I think what we're getting at is it resembles certain aspects of fascism very much departs from others. You know, traditional fascism was based on corporatism. It's based on the idea that workers and bosses have common interests in their big corp- you know, bureaucratized corporations. That was real ideology when, you know, someone like Mussolini said, fascism means corporatism. That's what he actually meant. Um, you know, there is no class contradiction. We're all in, you know, we're all in it together in this sort of nationalist thing. Now, that's gone. I mean, that's, we're not going to have that kind of fascism. What we have instead is this kind of almost individualistic fascism, where everybody is like a little fascist corporation or everybody's like a little fascist nation. Um, this is what I think that whole self-actualization movement of the 70s were really all about. And that's become, you know, all that language of this sort of new bureaucratization, all these, you know, excellence and quality and stakeholders and best practice, you know, all that language ultimately traces back to this kind of individualistic fascist, everything is caused by you, you know, you're responsible for everything that happens to you, all you have to do is have, it's a kind of a triumph of the will on the individual level. Um, and, and, and that's become, so, so there's traces of fascism, but fascism is reworked into this hyper-individualistic form. Um, so, so I would say that, you know, when it comes to democracy, um, these guys, no interest in democracy, and it's become increasingly clear. Um, the thing, you know, they're, they're telling us democracy is the market, but I'm not saying that's true. Um, that's, this is, in fact, it's complete nonsense. The exact opposite is the case, and um, people in charge readily admit it that the democracy is the last thing they have in mind. Um, actually, they'll usually admit the market is the last thing they have in mind too. That's just a line. Um, democracy has always been an aspiration. As I've always pointed this out. Uh, it's not been an aspiration of the people in power either. Uh, if you look at it, you know, nowhere in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution does it say anything about America being a democracy. Those guys hated democracy. They were completely against it. They set up a system to stop democracy, and they said so. Um, read the Federalist Papers, they're totally up front. Um, you know, democracy was this idea that people should be allowed to, if left alone, could govern their affairs collectively in a reasonable and relatively egalitarian fashion. It was an ideal. It was an unrealized ideal, but it was you know, a, 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 it's a kind of a glimmering possibility that people have been pursuing and trying to move towards people, working class people, popular forces of various kinds. And, and that 
form of democracy is profoundly anti-bureaucratic. Um, and that's the thing which, you know, always gives me hope. That it never goes away. People really believe in it. You know, most Americans love the idea of democracy. They just hate politicians and, and are suspicious of government. Well, then obviously they don't think that democracy is basically a matter of electing politicians to run a government, since they don't like those things. It's something else. And that's something else. You know, the fact that we all love it, even though we don't quite know what it is, is what gives me hope. David, I can't believe that you ended this entire conversation on the word hope. That is pretty amazing. That was not the word I was expecting this conversation to end on. I really appreciate you being back on the show. You have you made the biggest mistake you've ever made by answering one of my emails, so now I'm going to be bugging you for the rest of your life to come back on the show. I really appreciate you being here. Well, that's and, okay. I like your show. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day in London, and go uh, support the students who are occupying, sir. Off I go now. Bye-bye. Take care. All right. Take care. Awesome. This is Board Operator Dan, and that was the late, great David Graeber in 2015, talking about his book, The Utopia of Rules. Just a few years after that, he would elaborate upon some of the ideas in Utopia of Rules, specifically as relates to the workplace, and demonstrate that the idea that the so-called free market workplace, uh, which are assumed to be very efficient, not only tolerate but sort of require a series of bizarrely inefficient jobs. He paints a vivid picture, and I'm proud to say that I did read a PDF of this book while on the clock working a desk job, and it was a ray of sunshine in an otherwise unpleasant experience. So let's go to David Graeber talking to Chuck in 2018 about his book, BS Jobs. This is hell. More and more people are realizing that their work is meaningless and the number of BS jobs is growing every day. Here to tell us why this is a very serious social problem that desperately needs to be addressed before we all lose our sense of self, anthropologist David Graeber is author of BS Jobs, A Theory. Welcome back to This Is Hell, David. Thank you very much. It's always great to have you on the show. It's great to hear your voice. And uh, don't forget that we have to keep saying BS because we are regulated yeah, no, by... Yeah, we are a radio station. There are somewhat arbitrary rules, yes. Exactly. Um, just suffice it to say that the title is not actually BS Stop, but you'll have to guess what it actually is. Yes, and uh, we're having technical issues with our censoring device, so <laughs> so let's see which one so of us... i got to be very, very careful. Uh, I do, too. So You write how the polling agency YouGov took it upon itself to test the hypothesis that people believe that they have BS jobs, meaningless work, conducted a poll of Britons using language taken directly from your original essay. For example, does your job make a meaningful contribution to the world? Astonishingly, more than a third, 37%, said they believed that it did not, whereas 50% said it did, and 13% were uncertain. A later poll in Holland came up with very similar uh, results. So yeah, it was even worse. So yeah. only half of respondents believe their work made a meaningful contribution to the world, because it's 37% said they didn't, 13 said they weren't sure. To you, is meaningless work what's wrong with capitalism in general, or is it what's wrong with the way we are employing capitalism today? Is this a function of capitalism or a function of what we have done to capitalism? I'm not even sure you can call it capitalism anymore. I mean, you know, the, one of the few things you could definitely say was a positive element of capitalism is that it tended to actually make stuff 
and produce all the consumer plethora, you know, and and get it to people who actually could afford to to buy it. You know, that was supposed to be its strong point. Um, it, the plague of bullshit. Uh, sorry, God, I get it. Uh, the plague of BSDS <laughs> jobs. Uh, the plague of, of of these jobs that are pointless jobs. Yes, uh, is that they are they are. Um, it's a relatively recent thing. I mean, it's more of the sort of thing you associate with feudalism, where you know you pay retainers to sit around making you look good, than it is with capitalism. In fact, it was exactly the sort of thing that capitalism was supposed to avoid. You know, back when there was a competitor to capitalism, back when you had state socialism, they were the guys who made up the meaningless employment. You know, if you go buy a, you know, something at a buy a magazine in a store in the Soviet Union. You know, there's one guy to take the magazine and another guy to, like, give you a coupon for it, another guy <clears throat> to redeem the coupon. You know, they're just constantly making up unnecessary jobs because they had a full employment policy. And you couldn't get fired once you did get hired. So so needless to say, you end up a situation where they used to say, you know, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. So the jobs are largely meaningless. But those were sort of meaningless working class jobs. Now suddenly capitalism, as soon as the Soviet Union collapses, starts creating these sort of meaningless white-collar executive jobs. I mean, there's also meaningless blue-collar jobs, but most of them are are pretty nice office jobs. Often you're a manager, middle manager, you're executive even. You get paid pretty well, but you're not actually doing anything. It's really strange that capitalism produced this. Yeah, it is. And you have all these interviews with people who understand that they have meaningless jobs, who have bols- uh, meaningless work, BS jobs. I've often had conversations with people who tell me, you won't believe how much I get paid for how little work I do. But at mm-hmm. other times, yeah. those same people will tell me how horrible work has been for them, even working at times six and seven days a week. While I realize this is anecdotal, limited my own experiences, and therefore mm-hmm. it can be misleading. When you talk to people who had BS jobs, were they aware they were BS? And uh, like like those I talked to alternatively uh, working their asses off at their BS jobs. How much do you think the BS nature of their job is masked by how, how hard the work can actually be? Well, this is an interesting thing because, I mean, there's two ways to have a BS job. There's some jobs where you just literally don't do anything um, or, you know, you're a receptionist at a place that doesn't really need a receptionist. And maybe you get one or two calls a day and otherwise you have to sit there and sort of look like you're shuffling papers or doing something or, you know, you're running a database that no one ever accesses, and every now and then, you know, once a week, someone will call. You know, there are jobs like that. Um, and then there's jobs where you're do- you might be working very hard, but the entire enterprise is pointless. And a lot of people felt that way. I should emphasize it. The, the key element here is I'm not going to tell anybody who thinks their job is useful or important that they're wrong. You know, that would be obnoxious. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm saying, you know, if you think your job is meaningless, well, I'm not going to argue with you either. I mean, who would know better? Uh, and a lot of people seem to feel that their entire enterprise shouldn't exist. You argue that a mafia hitman is not a BS job and neither is a hairdresser. Yeah. But one has a horribly negative impact on society, and the other is a mafia hitman. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, hitmen have a negative <laughs> impact on society, and hairdressing seems to be a frivolous pursuit. So why doesn't violence or frivolity of work make the work meaningless or the job BS? Mm, okay. Um, first of all, it really depends, again, on the assessment of the person in it. Um, what I found was that 
service workers in the classic sense of the term, people who cut hair, people who serve coffee, that sort of thing. Those people generally do not think that they're in BS jobs. Um, they might hate their jobs, often they do, but they don't see it as useless or pointless. That they real, you know, you don't get people saying, you know, I market selfie sticks. Selfie sticks are stupid as a job. You know, it's a stupid job. I mean, people kind of accept. All right, if there's a demand for this, who am I to say what people should like? So, but on the other hand, um, there's whole enterprises where, you know, clearly. People feel if, the, if these didn't exist, the world would be a better place. I think most corporate lawyers secretly feel that way. You know, if there were no corporate lawyers, that would be great. So there's that distinction. Um, the other thing, the mafia hitman is in a bullshit. Oh, God, I keep doing that. Um, the, the, the mafia hitman is in a BS job because because he isn't pretending to be anything other than what he is. So there's no BS element, right? Um, he's, you know, he, he doesn't claim that he's beneficial to society, or maybe he does. Nobody really takes it seriously. Um, and, you know, he might have a job where the mafia boss hires him as a security guy in a casino, with, you know, as cover. Well, that might be a BS job because he isn't really doing it. He's pretending to be something else. But, you know, if he's just going around saying, I'm hired muscle, watch out. Well, you know, he's not socially beneficial, but there's no there's no BS element because he's not pretending to be anything other than what he is. You also define the list of BS jobs falling into five categories, and one of the categories is goons. Goons are people whose jobs have an aggressive element, but crucially, yeah. who exist only because other people employ them, and you use National Armed Forces as an example. How are yeah. the troops a BS job, but mafia hitmen are not? Well, the troops aren't necessarily. I was just giving them as an example, um, for example, of people who don't only exist because other people do. They don't feel they're in a BS job. Again, I'm not going to argue with them, but you know, some might, but I think most don't. And also you have to bear in mind armies do a lot of things other than simply protect against other armies, and, and people in armies are aware of that. But So I wasn't actually saying that. I, what I was trying to do is in that section where I categorize people, is take the 250-odd testimonies I had received, because that's what I did. I, I went off and solicited um, and said, all right, have you ever had a really pointless job? I did this on Twitter, so obviously there's a slight bias, right? Um, since uh, the 68,000 roughly people who follow me on Twitter are probably skewed in all sorts of different ways. But nonetheless, you have to get a sample somehow. And so I said, well, if you ever had a pointless job, tell me all about it. You know, give, give me all the details. What was it like? Did people know? Did your boss know? Yeah. And and I got a whole bunch of testimonies. And what I was doing in that section was sorting through the various types and how people themselves explained how that job came about and why they felt it was BS. So a lot of people wrote in and said things like, I'm a telemarketer. This is complete nonsense. There shouldn't be telemarketers. I'm just annoying people or trying to rip them off. I hate it. It's terrible. So, you know, if you're providing, if you're cutting people's hair or you're you're providing coffee, well, you know, whether or not you think it's good coffee or, or whether you think they have idiotic hairstyle, um, it doesn't matter because you, if you feel you're providing something. But someone like a telemarketer didn't. They, they really felt bad. They were being forced to scam people who they didn't really want to scam. Um and I don't know if there's anybody I talked to as a telemarketer who didn't feel their job shouldn't exist. So 
why do telemarketers exist? I mean, largely just because it's profitable for people to they're a scam. But insofar as there anything else, you know, and I talked to people in businesses, I said, well, you you employ telemarketers as other people have them. You don't need them unless someone else has them. I realize the same is true of corporate lawyers. They're a little like feudal lords. Maybe I should have used that as an example instead of armies because it's a little more accurate. You know, feudal lords essentially um, protect you. That was the whole medieval setup, right? There are three. Um, there's three categories of people. There's there's peasants who make food and crafts and you know provide provide the necessary means of life. There's priests who pray for your soul for everybody, and then there's lords who protect you. Well, who are lords protecting you from? Other lords, right? Um, so if there were no lords, you wouldn't need lords to protect you. So it's a little bit like that. Um, corporate lawyers are the equivalent. You know, they have an aggressive function, but you don't need them unless other people have them. A lot of PR and advertising is like that. And a lot of people who are in PR and advertising did write to me and say that their jobs were pointless and shouldn't exist. So I had to have a category to include that. So it, one of the things that I was really fascinated about is how BS jobs, meaningless work, can actually create meaningful work, how much meaningful work that is completely mm-hmm. unrelated to the actual business of the BS job provider are actually created by BS job. Isn't, for instance, a, a corporate psychologist helping workers with mm-hmm. on-the-job stress, isn't that doing mm-hmm. meaningful work? Yes. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I, George Lutbach likes to use the examples of all-night pizza delivery men and dog washers. He said these are two jobs that only exist because People are working too hard. So it's work that's created because people were working too hard. Is that necessary or not? I mean, in a way, again, it feeds off itself a little bit like the corporate lawyers. So you could say that. And you could say that, for example, I think Pierre Bourdieu used to do these calculations that, you know, when they introduce workplace efficiency um, by speeding things up and making things more flexible and basically oppressing the workers a lot, um, the result is, there's more on-the-job accidents. There's more, you know, domestic violence, drunken and broken homes. Uh, people, you know, can't take it and have nervous breakdowns. And have to... So the actual social cost of these speed-ups is huge because some you know, the government has to provide someone to take care of you when you get drunk and fall off, you know, get hit by a car because you've been overworked and abused. Um, but it's never counted as part of the cost of the efficiency, you know, the, the speed up is, is, is justified by the fact that it saves society all this money, but actually it doesn't. It just takes the cost and um, turns it over to another part of the state apparatus. That's fascinating. Is, is it far more likely that we do not realize we have a BS job if we are doing meaningful work for those who are doing BS jobs? Because yeah, I was talking to a contractor, yeah. and he was yeah. telling me how he does meaningful work. He works with his hands, mm-hmm. makes beautiful work, but he realizes the person they're working for, that person does meaning, meaningless work, which makes their own meaningful work seem meaninglessly, seem meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. How much can meaningful work contribute to BS jobs and the expansion of meaningless work. That's a really interesting question. I do mention that. Like, say it is true that 37%, let's say the guys who are wavering are wrong, and just the 37% who say my job is definitely nonsense are uh, are right. Okay, let's say they're right. Well, that's 37% of all work doesn't need to be done. But what about the guys who are doing support work for that? You know, what about yeah, any office where people are just doing some kind of tax scam or something? Somebody's got to water the plants. 
Somebody's got to do pest control. Somebody's got to do, you know, security. Somebody's got to clean the toilets. You know, that's real work. But it's real work done in support of BS. So, so this actually creates a conundrum. I mean, what percent is it? I mean, obviously, if you're in a big office building and you're you're the cleanup guy, probably some of those offices are doing real work. But if you look at proportions of the work that's actually done in our society, and you eliminate first of all the jobs that don't need to exist at all, second of all the unnecessary work those jobs create for others, which is another issue, uh, and then finally the real work which is done. Uh, in order to support the guys doing the nonsense, well, I'm sure you could easily get rid of 50% of the work we do, and, and there would be no trouble at all. So you write, one might be tempted to conclude that there is at yeah. least one class of people who generally don't realize their jobs are BS, except, of course, what CEOs <laughs> do isn't really BS. For better or for worse, yeah. their actions do make a difference in the world. They're just blind to all the BS they create. But if creating yeah. the BS is purposeful, how do CEOs not see the BS they create? And can we blame BS work on CEOs for not realizing the work they create is BS? Well, obviously, the thing is that's not the only thing, but it's a lot of what they do. And and I think the thing in CEOs and other people in executive positions is that they're just least likely to admit what's going on because they have such a personal stake in it. And and one of the major reasons for the multiplication of these forms of pointless employment is the fact that in large corporations, now if you have a, you know, if you have a firm with five guys. Probably each one of those five guys is doing something. It seems reasonable to conclude. But if you have a firm with 5,000 people, well, chances are there are various managers, and each one has a little empire. And they're vying against each other for prestige and also with other executives based on how many subordinates they have, how many people work in your department. Sometimes pay is directly related to that. So they have no incentive to admit that people are useless. They have every incentive to hire more people under any conditions, uh, as long as it doesn't actively damage the company in some way that people will notice. Um, And they have no incentive to fire anybody. Now, interestingly enough, uh, they are not considered to be a greater manager if they have a lot of blue-collar workers working under them. That's all filed separately somehow. So they're celebrated for cutting the numbers of workers in that sense. You know, if, you, if you're a finance guy or, and finance is kind of fused with the upper echelons of corporate bureaucracy now, you know, you might get praised for, like, reducing the number of delivery guys um, so by speeding it up and making their lives miserable and tailorizing it and doing all sorts of terrible things. But you won't be treated that way for the white-collar workers. Instead, it's exactly the opposite. And I've had guys who are efficiency experts, you know, who were hired to sort of see who could get fired, how they could trim the fat in corporations. And they say, I realize I had a BS job because they're just they're just hiring me as a box picker. They're not going they never do this. In fact, one guy said he's been doing this for a bank for fifteen years and the banks to two banks. And over that time neither bank had ever actually enacted a single one of the suggestions. Because every time he says, Well this person is unnecessary, this department is unnecessary, this can be computerized, they say wait a minute, but that would mean I'd lose half my staff. (laughs) You know, it'd be half as important a person. (laughs) So what explains that if these are uh, BS jobs, that uh, why do they continue and persist? Why hasn't market efficiency, David, eliminated (laughs) all these BS jobs? 
Well, that's the interesting question. And this is what you get from libertarians all the time, right? And sometimes Marxists, too, because they say, oh, it uh, must be creating surplus value for capitalism or else it wouldn't happen. You know? And it's all this, like, my theory says this, so what you're saying can't be happening. You get that a lot. Uh, but it is happening. Anybody who works in a corporation, you know, immediately, who isn't the CEO, uh, you know, will immediately say, oh, my God, yeah, it's so true. Uh, so it's a kind of a paradox. One explanation is that the market doesn't have much to do with it, or those elements the market does have to do of don't have much to do of hiring and employment within a, a large corporation or within any sort of bureaucratic operation. Um, another one is that what we have is increasingly not resembling our classic models of capitalism, and it's perhaps not capitalism at all. I coined the phrase managerial feudalism to describe this. Managerial feudalism is basically about redistribution of resources. The first example I found of this, which I thought was very telling, was someone who was working for a big accountancy firm. And um, they had a huge pot of money that they were supposed to redistribute because of some banking mistake, PPI. It's well known here in the UK, but I don't think people know about it in America. Essentially, they made some kind of accounting error, and people were ripped off, and now they have to give it back the money. So there's this huge pot of billions that they're supposed to redistribute to anyone who had a bank account during certain years. Now, what they and what this guy described was intentional mistraining. They would like hire people to redistribute redistribute the money, then they intentionally train them wrong, or they create systems that work wrong, or they put offices in the wrong city. Or they create rules which cause, made you like destroy the necessary documents five times and then try to make them up again. And they were clearly trying to be as inefficient as possible. But it doesn't seem to make sense until you realize that essentially these guys are paid by the hour. You know, the, the quicker they distribute the money, the less of that money they get. There's a huge pot, and you know, the more wheels and gears and tunnels and chutes they make the money go through before it gets to the people who are supposed to get it, the more they keep. And in a way, that's just, it's, it's a sort of a, a metaphor, synecdoche, I guess, um, for what's going on in the entire economy. Less and less profit is coming from making and selling things. More and more profit is, is coming from redistributing stuff. And if you think about it, it also makes sense because it's a necessary result of trickle-down economics. I suddenly had this sort of epiphany the other day. So it's a very simple way to think about it. Um, you know, the one thing left and right all agree on is more jobs is always good, which is a part of the reason nobody does anything about this. No one ever says useful jobs. They just say jobs. And they assume jobs are necessarily useful. Okay. So, however, the left-wing solution is, generally speaking, to give money to either poor people or middle-class people who will then go and consume things, consumers. So you give money to consumers. Well, if they're poor, they'll buy food. If they're middle class, they might buy a swimming pool. But either way, you're employing people to make the food or build the swimming pool. So if you give money to poor people, then it creates a certain type of job. Manufacturers, merchants have to hire people to make and sell the swimming pools and food. Mm -hmm. uh, if, however, you go to the right-wing solution, which is just, say, rich people are job creators. It's up to them to decide you know, uh, what to make and who to sell it to. So let's just give money to rich people. Well then there's no demand for swimming pools or food. So what are they going to do? And this, this happened recently with the um, latest tax cut. They asked a whole bunch of peop, uh, people, you know, CEOs, are you going to hire more people um, just because you got a tax cut? 
I believe they were manufacturing companies. And of course, they all said no, because like, who's going to buy this stuff, right? Um, on the other hand, if you give, what they will do is hire flunkies. So if you give rich people lots and lots of money, well, I guess I'll buy another yacht maybe, but that's pretty limited employment comes from that. So a lot of the money will just get channeled down. It's just, again, it's a, all has to do with this redistribution of resources. So they'll just put it, they say, well, I'm supposed to be job creators. I'll, I'll hire someone. I'll just hire a bunch of flunkies to make me look good. And essentially that's what's going on. We are speaking with anthropologist David Graeber, author of BS Jobs, A Theory. David was on our show back in 2015 to discuss his book, The Utopia of Rules. He was also on yep. back in 2013 when we spoke with him about the original essay that was the uh, inspiration for his new book. That article was entitled On the Phenomenon of BS Jobs. And you can follow David on Twitter at David Graeber, G-R-A-E-B-E-R. Do we not consider the potential meaninglessness of our work and the importance of meaningless work in our economy and its impact on our culture for one of the same reasons many do not criticize capitalism or neoliberalism or those who call themselves patriots not blaming their nation and that is they have a feeling or sense of indebtedness to the system for providing what it does mm. and, and 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 has the privatization of the public sphere, the privatization of many public sector jobs, do you think that has switched allegiances from uh, the public sphere, from the government, from the nation to the private sector? Well, I don't know if people really feel allegiance to the public private sector, but they do feel that it should be more efficient. Um, it's very interesting. If you point out to people that most experiences of bureaucracy you have are with private bureaucracy, you know, like your bank or Apple computer um, or your wireless guys. Uh, and, you know, what they'll say is, oh, but that's not bureaucracy. That's just poor service. So there's a kind of conception that they shouldn't be like that. I mean, they always are, but they shouldn't be. Um, whereas the government, you really don't expect anything else. Uh, so, so there has been a shift in consciousness to that degree. And there has been a lot of people who will necessarily say, oh, all of these BS jobs are really, you know, first of all, think that you're talking about government bureaucrats. But, you know, they certainly exist in government bureaucracies, but less and less because government gets a lot of attention this way. So there has been a certain degree of political pressure to reduce unnecessary jobs in government. There has been no political pressure whatsoever, quite the opposite, really, about creating unnecessary jobs in the private sector. So to that degree, I, I, you could say there's a differential there. You write that the original essay was just one of a series of arguments I was developing at the time about the neoliberal free market ideology that had dominated the world since the days of Thatcher and Reagan was really the opposite of what it claimed to be. It was really a political project dressed up as an economic mm. one. How much can we say the same thing about BS jobs? Is meaningless work a political project dressed up as an economic one? Are BS jobs not about the market, but control and power over people? Well, the first person to actually make that argument was George Orwell. He said very explicitly, you know, because I, I said yes in the original essay, and a lot of people, of course, have instantly accused me of being a paranoid conspiracy theory guy. But you know, Orwell said it a lot more strongly than I did back in 1943. He said, you know, a lot of useless employment is just the fear of the mob. Uh, people think these guys are such dangerous brutes that we just need to keep them off the streets. Better they be doing nothing at all, or work that has, is, you know, produces nothing at all than just left to their own devices. And I think there is that. I, I think you can document fairly clearly that there is a fear of 
technological unemployment. Keynes coined that term in the 30s. Um, and to some degree, it's like in our system, if people aren't working, then they will starve or be unhappy or be miserable. But to some degree, it's like, well, we don't want these people to have free time on their hands. People will say it quite explicitly sometimes. Um, the example I always like to give is in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a kind of a collective freakout on the part of the ruling class about, well, you know, they were upset by the counterculture and the sort of 60s rebellion. But they started thinking about the space race, the sort of technological change of and there's, there were a lot of seminars on this. I know people who were involved in think tanks at the time said that what everybody was discussing is what are we going to do with the proletariat when the robots replace all the people? And it's a little bit like the discourse now. Um, and some of this later came to surface in things like Alvin Toffler's book, Future Shock, where they basically directly say that, um, that you know a lot of these disruptions they thought was due to too rapid technological change. And, you know, the basic line seemed to be like, we think this is bad. Oh, my God. Like, you know, in 20 years, the entire working class is going to turn into hippies. What are we going to do? Yeah, that's really shocking to me. So, <laughs> you know, uh, is yours not a conspiracy theory then because because those who are doing it are not conspiring to increase their power and control politically? They're simply all trying to flex the same power for the same results as meaningless work. Not a conspiracy, because this is merely the business of the wealthy attaining more and more power. Well, I mean, to some degree, you know, conspiracy does imply it's secret, and they're not very secret about it. Um, now, that's a point I always make, is that, that these guys regularly do meet together. Um, you know, they go to Davos, and they have little seminars. It's public. You can see what they say. You know, you can go to the G8, where all these, like, leaders and industrialists sit together and say, what are we going to do to the world economy? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that you know, if they didn't say they were doing it and you said they were doing it, you'd be a crazy conspiracy theorist. But but they're totally open about it, you know? How much oh, are... You look at, yeah. oh, I was just going to say, because I was just following up on something you were saying, how much are um, meaningless jobs a creation then of the automation of the economy? It, it, as the economy mm-hmm. becomes, as manufacturing becomes more and more automated, are we going to see mm-hmm. more and more meaningless jobs? Well, if, unless somebody makes a social issue and does something about it. I think we have two ways here. You know, back in the 30s when Keynes was saying, oh, technological unemployment is a crisis, and someone documented how, you know, every five or ten years somebody says, oh, my God, we're having a crisis. The machines are going to replace the people. We're going to have mass unemployment. What are we going to do? So the whole rise of the robot discourse nowadays is not new. So some people will say, well, look, it's, it's obviously nonsense. Economies adjust. They make up new needs. Um, we could be working 15-hour weeks, but we chose not to, you know, uh, so forth and so on. Um, but actually, you could make the argument that technological um, unemployment did occur. You know, that, that um, actually, from the perspective of Keynes, all these guys are unemployed. They just shove them in these jobs where they pretend to work because we just have this combination of a need to keep them off the streets politically. And this is very important, because I said it's not just a political thing, it's a moral and political thing. We have this felt idea that people should be working. And it's true that that idea is very convenient to those in power, but it's not simply an effective power. It's, it's a, there's a long, long, long theological social history, which lies behind how we came to the point where we could feel that 
somebody, first of all, that doing nothing is so bad that it's better to sit there and you know dig a hole and fill it in again all day than to sit around and do nothing at all. First of all, that. And second of all, the fact that if you're not just digging a hole and filling it in all day, but doing something that's actually useful, you're less virtuous in a way because, you know, you're getting some kind of gratification out of it. So, because you write about pretending to work to appease a jealous boss, there may not even yeah. be an actual boss breathing down one's neck. In fact, usually <laughs> there isn't. But ultimately, the need to play a game of make-believe, not of one's own making, a game that exists only as a form of power imposed on you, is inherently demoralizing. It's no wonder yeah. the soul cries out, it is a direct assault on everything that makes us human. How is yeah. doing meaningless work an assault on everything that makes us human? Uh. Well, this is very interesting because it has to do with the one's sense of self. And a long time ago, I'd heard this expression that just kind of resonated with me. Sometimes you just hear these things and you say, oh, that's really interesting. I need to look into that someday. Someday I'm going to do something with that. You know, at least I do that. Um, and I'd heard this phrase, the pleasure of being a cause. Because, you know, so many philosophers and so many cynical people, you know, just assume that, that we desire power. Human beings want power over others. You know, we're all in a necessary state of competition. Sometimes they think we just like power, like Nietzsche does, or um, you know, or sometimes they say, "Well, we want power to guarantee our access to gratification, food, sex, whatever it is we want." But um, there's an assumption that people wish for power, and 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 actually, an interesting alternative explanation is the one that. I, that it's just pleasurable to be the cause of things. It's not like you want to have power over others. You want to know that you caused stuff. You want to know, you say, look, that changed and it was me who did that. And and that's really the underlying urge, which then gets perverted into all these forms of power and dominance. And that urge in itself is, is perfectly innocent and, and, and quite a nice thing. And there's a guy named Carl Groth. I'm not really sure how to pronounce the German word of spelled G-R-O-O-S, uh, but Gruss, Gruss, Gruss. Anyway, um, he actually did psychological experiments where he discovered that children get their first sense of themselves as autonomous beings, independent of the world around it, when they realize that they can do things that have predictable effects on the outside world. So, like, maybe you're an infant, you move your arm, and you knock something over. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, and then you do it again, and the same thing happens. You realize, oh, that's an object, and I'm me, and I can, and if I, you know, manipulate me in the right way, I can have an effect on it. And they just get really happy. It's gonna be documented. They just like laugh with just pure pleasure. This is great. I can knock over a pen as much as I want. And this is like the sort of formative moment when you realize that you're actually a being. You exist. It's not when you stare in the mirror. It's Lacan is wrong, according to Grove. Um, it's it's when you realize that you can have effects on the world, and that kind of happy delight, you know, that that feeling of this is so cool, I can affect things, sort of underlies your sense of yourself as a person and and your sense of being in the world. So what I was suggesting is if you take that away, then and and people have done experiments with that. Okay, kid figures out that he can knock something over predictably, and he's really happy. What happens if we change it so it doesn't work, you know, and they always set up these evil scenarios. And in fact, it's totally free. You know, they go from being intensely delighted to confusion, rage, and then almost catatonia. They withdraw from the world. So 
what I'm suggesting is what's happening in a in a BS job um, is is analogous. And there's also an element of play. This is kind of interesting. Um, because a lot of play is based on that. Um, why we enjoy play is, is our ability to sort of create a world, a make-believe world, um, is, is the ultimate extension of that, you know, ability to be a cause and be separate from the world and also affect it um, and the happiness it brings. But so all these make-believe worlds we create are extensions of that. But this is the opposite. This is a make-believe world you didn't create that's being imposed on you, where you have to pretend that you're doing something, but you're not. So it's a complete inversion of everything he was talking about. So in that sense, you know, if yourself and your sense of self and your joy in being a self is based on your ability to predictably have an effect, positive effect on the, on the world as you grow up to care affects others positively as well, um, then being forced into an imaginary situation where you're pretending to work but actually you're not against your will is the ultimate assault on that sense of self. You write that asserting oneself creatively or politically against pointless employment might be considered a form of spiritual warfare. What do you mean by yeah. spiritual warfare? How could challenging meaningless work and BS jobs be seen as a kind of spiritual violence? Well, it's exactly in that sense. If your sense of self and, and, and being in the world is based on that, that is the human spirit in a way. That, that, that chuckling child who managed to knock something over and can do it regularly is your soul. Uh, um, this is your sense of what you are in the world. And any attack on that is an attack on the basis of your existence. You know, this is a struggle for spiritual survival in a certain way. Um, at least so could, could be so, so imagined. Um, and, and it's, I wanted to put it in these strong terms, partly because I want people to feel that they're not crazy, essentially. Because what we're taught is that we're a bunch of people who are essentially all a bunch of lazy scroungers. Um, this is economic theory. This assumes this automatically. Everybody wants um, to put out the minimum effort to get the maximum reward. You know, so invest the minimum resources and, and your own efforts are part of those resources to get the maximum out of it, profit. And that's what motivates all human beings to do everything. And it's rational and it's good, and you know, they actually like that. People should, people are like that. People should be like that. Uh, and if that were true, of course, if suddenly I get a job where I'm being paid a professional level salary to answer two phone calls a day, um, and otherwise just look busy, I would be delighted, right? You know, I'm getting something for nothing. I have almost no effort whatsoever. And, and major rewards. So the rational economic actor should be pleased as punch, but the rational economic actor isn't pleased as punch. He's sitting there saying, why am I so upset? <laughs> you know, why is this driving me crazy? And, and it's a real moral confusion results because you feel, okay, I'm being made into a, I'm a parasite, but I don't want to be a parasite. I'm being forced to be a parasite. I'm being forced to pretend I'm not a parasite. You know, uh, Am I allowed to complain? You know, I feel miserable, but I have no justification for feeling miserable. But that makes it even worse. So, in a way, this is why I call it spiritual warfare. You're justified in, in, in a different sense of self. You need to assert that. And we need to change people's basic conceptions of what people are and what they're about. 
That reminds me of uh, recent conversations we've had with George Monbiot on loneliness, mm. with Johan Hari on depression. How much are meaningless work on, and bo- BS jobs a result mm. of our economy being a scam? Because you write, many who work <laughs> in the fire sector, finance, yeah. insurance, real estate, are convinced that almost everything done in it is basically a scam. How much are BS jobs then simply a result of our entire economy being propped up by a scam? Well, yeah. I'm when I say it's like feudalism, maybe I'm being gentle and nice, you know. I mean, maybe I'm not putting it um, as harshly as I could, which is simply that we're ripping people off. Um, I think a lot of it is um, one thing I've been looking into for years, and I I haven't really got the statistics is how much of the sort of average family income is just taken away by people in the fire sector, because. It used to be that capitalism meant making stuff and selling stuff, and you know it was all based on wage labor, right? Uh, so you pay people for a product which is, you know, more valuable than what you're paying them. And you know, under those circumstances, obviously, it doesn't make sense to hire people who don't do anything. Uh, but increasingly, the profits of major corporations are from either finance or from the financial sections of manufacturing companies. So they'll say, oh, the auto industry is actually making a lot of money. But actually, it's often the case that the auto industry itself is making, or the auto manufacturers themselves are making no money from making and selling cars. They're making money from financing the cars. So if it's all usury and, you know, if it's all finance, and finance is a fancy word for, for other, you know, sort of trading in other people's debts, producing and, and trading debts. And of course, Creating those debts all has to do with the legal system. It's all caught up in the government. And as I've written before, as a result, you know, it's really hard to tell what's public and private anymore. And the government itself is no longer simply guaranteeing property relations, which allow you to exploit your workers in the sort of classic Marxist um, capitalist paradigm, but is rather directly playing a role in taking that money out of your bank account. because It's all done through the legal system. Um, well, if you have that kind of thing, to what degree is it just a scam? I mean... You could definitely think of it that way. Just a couple more questions for you, David. One of the things that you point out is how uh, meaningless work seems to be rewarded and now meaningful work isn't, and that those who are doing meaningless work are often uh, politically motivated or encouraged to uh, to be people who are opposed to those who are doing meaningful work. Mm -hmm. So uh, why do we reward meaningless work and not meaningful work? And is the point of BS Jobs by the boss to divide and conquer workers to get those who are doing BS jobs to undermine those who are actually doing it and to disempower those who have meaningful work? Well, whether they're doing it intentionally or not, it certainly has that effect. Um, And you can't imagine that they don't notice that and that they're not at least a little bit pleased with it, I would say. Um, Yeah, one of the themes that, that really came up repeatedly is the weird way in which it's not just that the more your work benefits others, the less you're likely to get paid for it. It's that a lot of people actually seem to feel that's right. I mean, they don't feel it's right for them, right? You know, they don't say, well, I, uh, my work is useful and it's only right that I should get paid less than that guy who's just sitting in an office doing nothing all day. They don't say that. But in other ways, they do. When they're talking about other people's jobs, and I noticed this politically, that um, right-wing populists managed to get people really angry about teachers. 
And at first, they tried to talk about school administrators, and school administrators actually are causing a lot of the problems in schools. And it didn't take off. No one cared. But then when they said teachers, oh, you know, skyrocketed, like it worked. So they gave up on the administrators. Um, and similarly, uh, auto workers, after the 2008 financial crash, the only people who really had massive economic penalties placed on them, because the bankers still got their bonuses, um, the executives in the various corporations that got bailed out didn't really have to make any sacrifices. Who had to make sacrifices? The guys who were actually making the car. Which is insane because, like, how did they, you know, what did they do? Uh, but they caused this whole campaign about, like, oh, look at these guys. They're, you know, they're getting $25 an hour, but really they're getting 54 if you count the benefits. And uh, of course, you'd do that for any. Right? Um, and they made this whole campaign, which basically said, you know, these guys get to make cars and then they want middle class lifestyles too. These guys get to teach children. There seems to be this idea that if you're doing something which actually benefits society, well, that should be enough. You know, there's this resentment against them. And sometimes it's explicit. People will say, well, we wouldn't want uh, people who are just motivated by money to teach our children. So it's only right that we don't pay teachers too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, and on the other hand, we do want people who are just motivated by money to do our banking. So apparently, um, so, so that's OK. Um, so there seems to be this weird resentment of people who do things um for any reason other than just the money, even if it's that knowledge, that sort of warm feeling that you're contributing in some way to a society. Uh, cars are the quintessential American thing. You know, they are providing us with our national soul, you know, by giving us cars we can drive around in. Because that's what we are as Americans here. Yeah? Uh, they make our life possible. So should, shouldn't that be reward enough? Um, and, and the same thing, you saw this uh, in austerity in Europe. In the UK, I mean, like, Notoriously, the Tories would like cheer when they voted down bills to raise uh, salaries of nurses and and even cops. Actually, um, emergency medical technology. I always use examples like, you know, people you don't but have an obviously useful job would be like the guy who gives you the information on the train station. You know, I mean, if he wasn't there, I'd be in trouble, right? right. Um, I'd miss a lot of trains. That's a useful function, and. Um, you know, but those guys all got their salaries cut after the 2008 economic crash. The bankers didn't. So the only possible way you can explain this, I mean, you could explain it as power, right? Sure. But why did people keep voting for these guys? Why did people not say that's disgusting and, and, and kick him out? Well, part of it seems to be this idea that, well, if you are a teacher, if you are a, a nurse, you have dedicated you, your life to helping others. So help out, okay? You know, we're in a national crisis. Somebody needs to cut money. Should be people who are altruistic. And you want, I call it moral envy, that people have this feeling that, you know, it's not discussed in philosophy. As far as I know, there's no actual term for it, so I have to make it up. It's this feeling of resentment of people who try to get, are seen as trying to get recognition for being better than you because they actually are better than you in the sense of, you know, they hold themselves to a higher moral standard. People say, like, how dare that person want recognition for being harder working and more generous and kind? 
<laughs> Even though they don't actually demand it, they just act that way. Uh, this reminds me, the contradiction that I keep getting, David, is I'll have people <laughs> ask me, well, so yeah. you must be making money somehow, and they're trying to find a conflict of interest. Then when I tell them, you know, I don't make any money at this, they get even more paranoid, like they think that I'm up to something else. That So I'm damned if I do, and if I damn, I'm damned right, if I do You must get something out of it. These rational actors get something out of it, right? So what you're getting out of it is the moral satisfaction. How dare you sit there and think how great you are. <laughs> That's why I need to be a rational actor. I've been an irrational actor for far too long in my life, David. One last question for you, David. And as always, our final question for our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. We've been speaking with anthropologist David Graeber. He is author of BS Jobs, A Theory. And in case you're wondering if my question from hell is, is an anthropologist a BS job? I asked David that back in 2013. So go back and listen to that interview to hear that response. But aside um, from that, here's my question from hell for you. Okay. How much yeah. are BS jobs then contributing to inequality, contributing to climate change? How much is meaningless mm. work mm. not only crushing our souls, not only leading to greater and greater desperation for the people uh, at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, but how much are mm. BS jobs destroying the planet? Oh, well... Just in terms of inequality, I think inequality can only occur because it's held together politically. And increasingly, what BS jobs have done is created a situation where society is held together by various forms of resentment. That is to say, you know, people in meaningless jobs resent people with actually helpful jobs and try to punish them. Often they try to punish them by creating, like, more and more paperwork and um, BS for them to do. Uh, so they can't do their meaningful jobs. So teachers and nurses, for example, have to spend half their time doing paperwork now. Um, meanwhile, people in actual meaningful working class type jobs resent the cultural elite because, you know, that tiny, tiny percentage of jobs, which are both meaningful and well-paid, um, go only to rich people. So they hate those guys. And, and that's how you get Donald Trump, basically. Uh, so, so, so inequality is possible partly because our societies are held together by all these hatreds that are ultimately founded on the existence of these kind of jobs. At the same, okay, so the other question of global warming, well, the statistic, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but um, that really impressed me was that one of the few things that slowed down carbon emissions and might have helped you know, give us time to save the planet, um, the most significant thing in recent years that did that was the 2008 economic crash. That um, you know, after the economic crash, there was a huge slowdown. You know, the Baltic Dry Index collapsed. Ships weren't shipping stuff around. Uh, production fell. A lot of people were unemployed, and there was less carbon, and, and therefore, you know, uh, the world was a better place. So, obviously, the burden fell on 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 the wrong people, but especially as time went on. But think about that. I mean, like, probably the thing that would most help us as a planet, is to work less. And it's very interesting that, you know, this is the one thing that the sort of moralists of our time, I always say that pundits and newspaper op-ed writers are the equivalent of, of preachers in our modern society. Uh, they are the moralists of our day. This is the one thing that they just can't conceive. This Anytime there's a crisis, the first thing they all say is, oh, we have to work more. But no, actually, the best way to deal with this crisis is to work much, much less. 
I will end on that. Uh, so great. All we have to do is have another uh, great recession. Thanks, David. I really appreciate that happy <laughs> note that we're ending on. David, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I really always appreciate it. And you know I'm going to be bugging you to get you back on soon. Oh, yeah. Well, do so, because I probably say yes. <laughs> okay. I'd like the probably in there real quick. Thank you, David. You never know. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Anthropologist David Graeber is author of BS Jobs. David is a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics. He's been on This Is How twice in the past, most recently discussed his 2015 book, The Utopia of Rules, which you can find at our website. David was also on back in 2013 when we spoke about the uh, inspiration for his new book. It was an essay that he had written for a then-new magazine called Strike, and the name of that essay was On the Phenomenon of BS jobs, which you can easily find online. You can follow David on Twitter at David Graber. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. All right. That was David Graber in 2018 talking about his book, BS Jobs. Graeber has a new book out, published posthumously, called The Dawn of Everything, with co-author David Wingrow. That's highly recommended as well. Rest in peace, David Graeber. Let's read some questions from hell, shall we? Remember, this week's question from hell is, what is your Calvin peeing on? Like the little truck sticker. Thomas K. says, the Trump pee tape. Wojciech R. says, his jellyfish sting. Jack B. says, capitalist realism. Borky B. says, his foot. Nathan R. says, the thin blue line. Greg G. says, diverticulitis. Diverticuli... Uh, it's a tough one. Divertic... Uh, well, a disease. Fergus F. says, intellectual property rights. Shannon N. says, a Calvin peeing on a Calvin, peeing on a Calvin, peeing on a Calvin, etc. John T. says, after 9 p.m., a dimly lit alley in Oak Park, if one can be found. Braden S. picks up on Shannon's theme, saying, the back of his own head in an infinite recursive loop of Calvin and P. Jennifer L. says, somebody who gave consent. That is important. Very nice. I'll leave the rest for Lindsay tomorrow. She'll be playing a James Doucette battle interview um, about uh, racism and diabetes. And I know that on Thursday, producer Sebastian will be playing an interview with Cedric Johnson about the police in American society. And he'll have an all-new Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff channels an extraterrestrial who has a few complaints. I'm looking forward to that. I enjoyed playing some cool old This Is Hell interviews for you. I look forward to doing it again next week. Until then... My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.